0: Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoyed today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Rob, for straightening out my podium. How are we doing, Church 214? What what was that? You're gonna have to. I'm having a hard time hearing you guys. Are you, okay, I got you. How many of you are screaming at the television? I can't. I can't actually hear you. Okay, I'm looking into a couple of iPhones right now on Facebook Live. This is so weird. It's so cool. So awesome. Raise your hand if you are screaming at the television. Jared, I, I see you. I see you, Jared. I know you. To, you find it hard to believe, but I see you. Man, I am so excited to be here today in the basement. In a basement somewhere in central Illinois, we're gonna we're not gonna reveal the top secret location. <laughs> um and I, I man, this is so cool. It wasn't too many years ago where something like this would not even be possible. Right? If this if this pandemic comes through and this stay at home order comes through even a handful of years ago, I'm not sure we're gonna have a very easy time getting this Whole Facebook Live thing set up, so we're living in a you you we're living in a crazy time because it might it 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 hurts okay we're sad that we can't be together but what in the world we can do this we can do this every single w- weekend hopefully not for very long not for much longer on Facebook Live and and I I think we just need to give God some praise for that right now we really do because this is this is un. <laughs> This is unprecedented in our church specifically, and it's unprecedented, I think, in the church all across the globe, and we have this incredible opportunity this weekend, next weekend, and the next weekend, even after, like my brother said, even after COVID-19 is behind us, the church is going to step into a new season that I don't think any of us um, is, I think, accurately expecting enough of God. At this point, I think he's gonna exceed our expectations no matter what we expect. So let's expect a lot <laughs> about that. Okay. I, I'm I'm so excited to start a new series. We got to we we closed out our underground series very um uh very well last weekend in a basement uh with Chris. Chris, that was an amazing word. Thank you so much for that. We get to kick off a new series called Here's the Point. So here's the point. <laughs> In this series, we're going to cover the foundations of the Bible and how it all points to Jesus. And I think that uh, this is going to be really, really helpful if you're a new believer. But it's also going to be helpful for you, maybe if you've been in church for a long time, but no one has ever tied it all together for you. So if I was going to very quickly summarize the narrative, the entire narrative of the Bible, it would go something like this. And I'm actually kind of stealing from a book that I like to read to my son at night. Um... It starts like this. God wanted a family. And so he made this beautiful world for us to live in with him. And then people ruined everything when Adam and Eve chose to live their own truth instead of God's truth, instead of God's best. But Jesus came and rescued everything. And God is in the process of finishing what he started. God made it. People ruined it. Jesus rescued it. He will finish it. That is the narrative of the Bible. Now, for the next three weeks, we're going to provide a bunch of passages and stories from the beginning to the end to sort of support that overall narrative. Do you got it? Okay, so this weekend, specifically, we're going to focus on the Old Testament and even more specifically, the prophecies about Jesus. And I think the reason we need to focus on these prophecies is really simple for me. I don't know how your mind works, but this is how mine does. If these statements were really written down by humans prior to the life of Jesus, then it lends a ton of weight to the rest of the text in that book. These prophecies should be, uh, they should be a huge help to us as we do our best to believe that God is who he says he is and that Jesus is who he says he is. And so today I just want to gently nudge you down a path to answer two questions. First of all, what does the Old Testament actually say about Jesus? I want to give you the what. What does the Old Testament actually say about Jesus? And number two, why can we trust these prophecies in the Old Testament? What and why? So, without further ado, the first question is... I still can't hear you. You guys are going to have to shout louder next time. I'm really far away. Okay. (laughs) What does the Old Testament actually say about Jesus? So it's important to note that the name of Jesus does not appear anywhere in the Old Testament. You will not find it. I promise you will not find it. And there's actually a good reason for that, which I'll get to in a second. So instead, when we are looking for prophecies about Jesus in the text, the most obvious indicator is any passage that mentions the Messiah. Now in Hebrew, this word is Mashiach, and it means anointed one. So when we, when we, we want to look for this anointed one, anointing language. It's not a guarantee that it's about the Messiah because there's other situations in the Old Testament where there's anointing that doesn't talk about the Messiah, but it's a very good indicator. We want to look for this anointing language or a king from the line of David. Uh, We want to look for passages that mention a servant or one who would suffer and die, the Lamb of God, okay? But there is no mention specifically that the Messiah would suffer and die. There's actually no single verse, no single passage in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible, that explicitly ties it all together to the point where it says the Messiah will come and suffer and die. There's no passage that says that. Again, it's kind of like how the name of Jesus doesn't appear in the Old Testament. Why would that be? Well, the plan actually had to be kept secret. God's plan had to be kept secret because he, he didn't want the powers of darkness to find out. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the enemy was defeated. Death itself was defeated. We're going to celebrate that next weekend, thank God. And if they knew that was going to happen when they killed him, they wouldn't have killed him. And Paul is actually very, very clear about this, why the entire plan had to be kept secret. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, None of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There it is. The plan had to be kept secret. So rather than this super explicit message, we have this mosaic of puzzle pieces all throughout the Old Testament, and there's a ton of them. There's a ton of them, over 350. Some scholars count over 400, okay, that they point to a king from the line of David who would come to serve, not to rule, not just to rule, he would come to serve, and he would suffer, and he would die. So I'm going to go through several passages and explain why they are in fact talking about Jesus so that you can get an idea of what to look for as you do your own study. And be on the lookout for this. I actually found a really cool article. It's got a list of over 350 prophecies with the Old Testament reference and a link, a brief description, and a New Testament reference and a link. So you can see where things are mentioned in the Old Testament and where they're mentioned in the New Testament. This is going to be a great tool this week and next week especially uh, and, and going forward as you study these prophecies about Jesus. So be on the lookout for that. We're going to post it on social media. I think we're going to send an email out. Be on the lookout for that article. It's going to be really helpful for you. So as we go through these passages, I want to try to frame your mind, especially around this idea of the king, because the Jews especially were looking for an earthly king. They were looking for a political leader. How many know that you can never find a savior on Capitol Hill? Yeah. You can never find a savior on Capitol Hill. I don't don't care what political party, what news network you watch, you'll never find a savior on Capitol Hill. The the, the Jews were looking for a political leader. But if you read these prophecies, and we're just going to go through five today, you're going to quickly see that a politician can't possibly achieve this kind of stuff. So the king we're looking for is going to be a different kind of king, right? And I'm going to do my best to stay away from telling you if Jesus fulfilled these prophecies or how he fulfilled them because that's Heidi's job next week, okay? She's going to focus on the life of Jesus and how he fulfilled these prophecies. So I would really encourage you to tune in next week so you can kind of hear part two of this message in a way. And she may not cover the exact same ones I'm going to cover right here, but I promise you it will be clear. I promise you you will get it, okay? So are you ready? Prophecy number one. Let's go to Micah. How many of you have ever read the book of Micah? Yeah. Micah 5, 2. Micah 5, chapter 2. Here we go. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay, so Bethlehem was one of the clans of Judah. We see that here in the passage. But it was so small that it was not actually officially listed as a clan or as a city back during the time of Joshua. Okay, when the, when the Israelites moved into the Promised Land, they marched around Jericho, the walls fell down, they started conquering uh, all of the peoples, the Canaanite peoples that were in that region at the time. Once they had kind of gotten past all of the war, they split all of the land up, into 12 allotments, for each, one for each tribe, and then the tribes further subdivided their one allotment up between the clans within their tribe, and so Bethlehem got a chunk of land, but they were so small, they actually didn't even get officially listed as one. It's kind of like, yeah, you get land, but it's not even worth mentioning. I think that's so cool. Now, it's ta- So the king that we're looking for is coming from Bethlehem, and you might say, well, yeah, but King David came from Bethlehem, and you'd be right. Bethlehem is actually called the city of David, but the problem with that is Micah wrote this prophecy well after David was dead, so he can't possibly be talking about David. He has to be talking about somebody after David, and really he has to be talking about somebody after him, if you think about it. And the other thing, too, is at the very end of the passage, it says, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So actually, someone that the person we're looking for is someone who has always existed. And we all know that a politician can't do that. We all know that our politicians aren't immortal. So I think what we're looking for here, in fact, I know what we're looking for here, is we're looking for somebody from the line of David, born in Bethlehem, who has always existed. That sounds to me like the Son of God. Okay, that's Micah 5.2. We've got to look for a king from Bethlehem, from the line of David, who has always existed. Next prophecy, Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not give your faithful one to see the grave. Okay, this is a Psalm of David. And at first glance, it appears that David is referring to himself. David always wrote in the first person, Uh, so this would appear that he's talking about himself, but David knew he would die. He wasn't crazy. He knew knew that he was not immortal. He knew that he would see the grave. So this passage is actually about someone capable of defeating death, and we all know a politician can't do that. Right. Right. And even though he's speaking in the first person, he's actually not referring to himself. This is a very common theme, a very common uh literary device when you read prophecies. David is actually prophetically speaking as if he was the Messiah in this case. And we'll see this theme in the next and several more that I'm going to cover going forward. So again, David knew he was going to die. We're looking for someone that can def- is capable of defeating death. All right. And we, we want to look for these. Situations where authors are going to be speaking prophetically as if they were the Messiah, as if they were God themselves. Okay, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 42, verse 1, starting in verse 1, we're going to go to verse 4. It says, look, here is my servant. I hold him, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice forth The nations, he will not cry out, he and lift up and make his voice heard in the street. He will not break a broken reed, he will not extinguish a dim wick. He will bring justice forth in faithfulness, and he will not grow faint, and he will not be broken until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. So here we go. Isaiah, this is the prophet Isaiah recording what God is saying, and he's writing as if he, in the first person, as if he was God, the Father, okay? And God is saying, look, here is my servant. So we have that servant language I mentioned earlier. There's a key indicator. God is saying, here is my servant, my chosen one, okay? That's very similar to the anointed one, okay? In whom my soul delights. That is a huge phrase. We can find that one in the New Testament in a few places, who would he delight in more than his own son? Okay, he will bring forth justice to the nations, not just Israel. So this is something that a king of Israel can't do. Now, David was the greatest king that the Israelites ever had, and he brought justice to the nation of Israel. So a good king of Israel can bring justice to the nation of Israel, but the greatest king of Israel cannot bring justice to the entire earth. Okay, so we're looking for a different kind of king here. A politician can't do that. He sh- and when he shows up, he's not going to shout it from the rooftops. It says he will not cry out and, and lift up and make his voice heard in the street, verse 2, right? He's not going to shout it from the rooftops. He's not going to make much of himself. Other people might make much of him. Other people might try to make him famous and push him forward. But he's not going to get involved with that. And then we want to skip down to verse 4. This is my favorite part. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. This is huge, guys. The coastlands were not a part of the nation of Israel. Up to the north, you had cities like Tyre and Sidon, who were friendly cities to the Israelites for the most part, but they were not Israelite cities. And then down the central part of the coast and into the south, you actually had the Philistines, which were bitter enemies of the Israelites for generations and generations. So we have here the coastlands, waiting for his political prowess, him to conquer them. No, they're waiting for his teaching. They're waiting for his teaching. So this is referring to the idea that the Messiah is going to bring salvation to the Gentiles, even to the bitter enemies of Israel, even to the bitter enemies of God's chosen people. The Philistines had opposed the Israelites, had killed the Israelites, for generations and generations, and the Messiah is coming back for them too. Salvation was not just for Israel. And guys, I'm telling you, a politician can't do that. Aren't you thankful that salvation came for the Gentiles? Because news, newsflash: we are Gentiles. <laughs> Isaiah 53. Um, Just go ahead and read all of Isaiah 53. I could not pick a single verse. Um, Literally every single verse in that chapter is dedicated. It's a prophecy about Jesus, especially his death. Just go read that one and have fun with that. That will take you uh, quite a while to get through all of that. Um, But I I had to mention it because it's it's probably the most powerful chapter when it comes to prophecies about Jesus in the whole Bible. But let's skip forward to uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9. And says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king comes to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a male donkey, the foal of a female donkey. Now, there's a lot of donkeys in that passage, so let me clear that all up for everybody. <laughs> um, so when Zechariah is writing this, Zechariah is actually one of the, the last books in your Old Testament. When he's writing this, there actually wasn't a king of Israel at all. The monarchy had been completely eliminated. Zechariah is writing from exile, when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. So he is speaking about a king that would come in the future and who would specifically enter Jerusalem on a donkey. More specifically, a young male donkey. Now, without giving anything away, um, that's really, really freaking specific. Okay? So we know the Israelites had kings for years and years and years and years and years. And, years, and then that the monarch, the independent monarchy was ended. And then they were taken into exile. And here we have a prophet saying, hey, someday we're going to get a king. And he's going to ride in Jerusalem, into Jerusalem on a donkey. That That type of, I want you to, the thing I want you to catch with that is how specific that is. These prophecies are not vague sort of statements that just about can apply to anybody. I think that's been clear with all of them I've shared so far, but this one especially, I mean, this is something easy to look out for. All right, we got to wait around until a king comes riding through the gate of Jerusalem specifically on a young male donkey. If it's an old donkey, out. If it's a female donkey, out. A young male donkey, super specific. Okay, Isaiah 59, verse 20 and 21. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares Yahweh. And, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have placed in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children, says Yahweh, from now on and forever. That's a really good one. We can just clap for that one, I think. So verse 20, again, this is an example where the prophet Isaiah is writing as if he is God the Father, okay? And God the Father mentions a Redeemer, right? It says, and a Redeemer will come to Zion. There's the Redeemer language we're looking for. This is another term for the Messiah. And he's going to come for those who what? Turn from their sins. Chris talked about this last week, turning towards Jesus. I love how this is just lining up so perfectly. And then verse 21, God says that his spirit is upon you. Now, how many know the word you can be singular or plural? Okay, in this case, it is a singular you. So God is saying, my spirit is upon you. So he's referring to the Messiah specifically. And he's put his word into the mouth of the Messiah. And that same word, that same spirit will not depart from his mouth or from the mouth of his children or from the mouth of his children's children, generation after generation after generation after generation from now on and forever. So the next question you might ask is, who are the children? Well, I might be stealing a little of Holly, uh, Holly. Whew. Heidi's thunder. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, but Jesus didn't have any biological children, so who are the children? Those that turn to him. This language is all over the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Again, Chris mentioned this last week. Jesus called his disciples little children. And John heard his voice and he knew his voice. Guys, The children, that's us, that's the church. So we have a prophecy not only about Jesus coming to redeem everything, to rescue everything and make everything right, to heal everything. We have a prophecy about us, about the church. How cool is that? This was written like 400 years before Jesus was born, and there's already a prophecy in there about us doing this right now on Facebook Live. That's insane to me. So I hope that this small sample of what the Old Testament says about Jesus Is starting to open your eyes a little bit. I've only covered five passages, and like I said, there's over 350 of them. So I hope you start to appreciate this level of detail and the specific and how specific these prophecies actually are. This is easy stuff to look for if you're looking for a Messiah. There's so much here, so specific, that it's very easy to just eliminate people as they show up. Unless, of course, someone actually starts to fulfill them, which we'll get to next week. So that's what the Old Testament says about Jesus, but so what? Why can we trust it? All those things are great, but what if I can't trust it? Okay, so to answer this question, we're going to jump into the world of textual criticism, which means we're just going to look at how we got the Old Testament, and is it reliable? How do we get it How reliable it is. And just a forewarning, um, I'm going to say some things that many of you have never heard before. I am so confident I'm going to say some things that many of you have never heard before. This type of stuff, it really doesn't get talked about in church. It gets discussed in scholarly journals and articles and and at universities. Um, It doesn't get talked about in church nearly enough. Okay? So I'm going to say some things that you haven't heard before, and I'm also going to say some things I think that are going to shake you a little bit. They might even shake your faith a little bit, but stick with me. Lean into the tension. We have, to be, we have to start exercising our muscles a little bit. We need to get comfortable with tension, especially right now. I'm sure you're getting all kinds of practice being cooped up at home, <laughs> right? Um, it's going to shake you a little bit at first, but stick with me because I promise it's going to work out in the end, okay? So the 39 books of our Old Testament were written over the course of 1,200 to 1,400 years. That's a long time. If you scour the text for potential prophecies about Jesus, like the passages I just covered, again, you're going to find over 350. Some, some scholars count 400, 415, 420. It gets, that's about the highest number you'll see. And I was able to find at least one prophecy about Jesus in 26 out of the 39 books in the Old Testament. So the evidence is everywhere. So we have many different authors over the course of 1,200 to 1,400 years would sit down at some point whenever they received their revelation from God and they would write down the original text, the first edition, we'll call it. And then every once in a while, that text would be copied by another scribe and edited and updated and passed on to other people. And there'd be more copying and editing and updating so that more and more people could read this incredible story of what God was doing. Now, don't you, now don't, just, <laughs> don't freak out about the last statement. You heard correctly, I did say copy, edit, and update. Okay? So let me just be really, really, look, we don't have, look, let me be really clear. We don't have the original texts for any of the books of the Bible, we do not have the original scroll of Genesis. We don't have the original scrolls of Psalms. We don't have even the originals of the Gospels. We don't even have the original of the book of Revelation. That was the last book that was ever written that's in the Bible. Chris talked about it last week. We don't even have the original of that. Okay? We've got copies. Now, they are very, very old, but they are copies. That's possible that the originals have survived. We just haven't found them yet, but it's extremely unlikely. And even if we did find the originals, we wouldn't actually know that we had them, because again, it's unlikely that, you know, John wrote at the top, "This is the first edition," (laughs) right? So even if we had it, we wouldn't know that we had it. We would just know that we could date it, and we could say, "Yeah, that's the oldest one we found," but we wouldn't know it was the original. So, time out. Quick pulse check. Hey, find a find a spot. (laughs) Is God still on the throne? Okay, I'm in a basement. Uh, There's no windows. It's hard to hear. Did anybody look out the window? Did did God fall off his throne? Was there a big earthquake? Okay, no. Is he big enough and powerful enough to preserve his word through things like humans, broken, fallen humans, copying and editing and updating and even translation? Translation. Even translation. Is he big enough and powerful enough to get over all of that, to preserve his word through all of that? Yes. Okay. Are you, still, are you still heart beating still? Okay, let's keep going. So the very last of the prophets finished writing their original texts around 400 B.C. We're pretty confident in that date. And up to this point, each book of the Bible existed as an independent text. Okay, it's not like they wrote Genesis and the, book, the Bible was this thick, and then they got Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and the book gradually got thicker, right? It wasn't like that. They were all independent texts. And there were copies everywhere. And so around 200 B.C., we have what's called the Great Assembly. It was a group of 120 Jewish scribes and uh, church leaders. And they got together and they said, you know what? We've got all these texts. Let's, let's, Let's assemble the Old Testament. Let's put it all into one book, one volume, and start copying that. So that everybody can get the whole story. So they all went to their libraries and the synagogues and their personal collections, and they gathered all of the sacred texts they could find. And then they sat down, they read through them, and they got together and said, okay, which ones are in, which ones are out? And they didn't just have two categories. They didn't have inspired word of God on this category and heresy, you're dying on this category. (laughs) There was categories in between. There were many sacred texts, like the book of Enoch. I'll mention the book of Enoch that they held in very high regard, but that did not quite reach inspired word of God. So it was left out. And even after it was eliminated, they still read it. Okay, how many of you read books other than the Bible today? You know, Brian Houston puts out a a book, Rick Warren, um, Stephen Furtick, uh, John Piper. Those Those are probably good books to read. Is it inspired word of God? No. Is it helpful? Yeah. Probably yes. Okay, so are we still good? Yeah. Right. We, in fact, here's the, here's the cool part. There are a few places in the New Testament, I can't get into it where the, now, but where the writers of the New Testament are actually referencing material from the book of Enoch. So we know that even the New Testament writers read this stuff and were influenced enough by it to reference it. Paul references Greek philosophers, in the inspired Word of God. So, quick pulse check. Is God big enough to handle the great assembly finalizing the Old Testament? Yes. yes. Can Jesus still be the Son of God if the New Testament writers read books that were excluded from the Bible? Yes. Can any of that change the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? No. So, what we have, what we'll call the final form of the Old Testament was established by 200 BC, and this is huge, at the absolute latest 200 BC. So by the time Jesus was born, we had the entire Old Testament, including the prophecies, set in stone. Let me say that one more time, because I didn't hear enough hallelujahs coming through the lens of the camera. The Old Testament was complete no less than two hundred no less than two hundred years before Jesus was born. That means that none of the Old Testament was written after the life of Jesus to make it line up with Jesus. And you're gonna hear this argument from people. Don't accept it, don't have to accept it. I don't care how many how many letters after are after the last name. I don't care how many universities they teach at or how many books they wrote. That argument is devoid of intellectual honesty. Trust me on this. You'll find thousands of blogs and YouTube videos. Maybe you have trying to sell you the seeds of doubt. Maybe you've got family members or friends that have asked you some tough questions like this, and and these arguments might sound really brilliant, and and in the moment, you get a little bit scared and intimidated, and and you start to, and you're not quite sure how to answer, but we can start to change that now. Okay? Okay? I, I can't possibly address every single theory or argument, but let's just give you some, let's give you some information to help you with a couple of them, okay? So how, how, do you, how can you trust it? I mean, it's copying and editing and translating, I mean, how do you know the story isn't totally different? How do you know it's not wrong? I mean, how do you know you're not looking for some guy named Roy instead of, instead of Jesus? I mean, how can you know that? And that sounds, like, super brilliant. Maybe it, does, maybe it doesn't Maybe does to you. It does to me at first glance. But, man, have you read the Bible lately? This is where my mind goes. Um, so hopefully this resonates with at least one other person. Like, have you read the Bible lately? Just follow me here for a second. If there really was a grand conspiracy stretching across thousands and thousands of years to come up with this lie for people to believe in, like, don't you think we would have, like, removed all the offensive stuff by now? (laughs) Like... So we can get the numbers up even higher? Because I, I last time you checked, like, there's a lot of Christians that, official, officially a lot of Christians in the world, but there's like six billion that aren't. So, like, if we want to get the numbers up even higher, like, shouldn't we, like, remove all the offensive stuff? And we've had, like, 2,000, 2,500 years to do that. Don't you think we would have gotten rid of that by now? Don't you think we would have made it a little bit easier to believe in if there was a conspiracy theory? that's that's the fir- That's the first place my mind goes. But then, so let's go back to this other question. How do you know it wasn't written down later so that it all lines up with Jesus? And the fa- what you, need, you need to know this. No serious scholar accepts that theory. Christian, agnostic, atheist, no serious scholar accepts that theory. Okay? You will still find YouTube videos. You will still find articles. I promise you, academia has left that theory in the garbage bin because the historical record... The science, if I can use that word, doesn't support it. But this wasn't always the case. You see, prior to 1947, the oldest manuscripts we had for the Old Testament were from about 900 A.D. And this was a huge problem for us. Because here we are saying that all of these prophecies written about Jesus, they were written down way before he was born. But the oldest copy we have of those documents is from 900 years after he was born. Um... So, it was really easy to be like, okay, prove it. You can't. 900 years after he was born. But in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Israel. One of the most important archaeological discoveries ever. And in, the, in some caves in Israel, they found a bunch of scrolls. Some of them were biblical. Some of them were just like accounting ledgers and stuff like that. But, um, The most important discovery they found was called the Great Isaiah Scroll, which contained all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, although there were a few fragments and words missing here and there, because let's face it, that's a piece of parchment from a really, really long time ago, and not all of it survived, but almost all 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 the 66 books were represented, and there was only a few words missing here and there. And I'll do the math for you. There are 131 prophecies found in the book of Isaiah in our modern Bible, and every single one of those 131 prophecies were completely preserved in that scroll. So this is huge. This is huge. Obviously, they studied this scroll very, very closely. They dated it. Many different teams dated it. They used carbon-14 dating. They looked at the what the parchment was made out of. They looked at the handwriting and the grammar and the style, So all these different methods to date things, many different independent studies, and the consensus puts the date of the scroll anywhere from 350 B.C. to 100 B.C. This means that the prophecies about Jesus were written down at least 100 years before he was born. Then, of course, the text was compared. It's like, all right, okay, okay, you almost got me there because now you've found something that's before Jesus was born. That's good, okay, but what does it say? Because 100 B.C. to, to 900 A.D., that's 1,000 years. That's a long time for you Christians to go changing stuff. So they compared the text. What does the, what is the oldest one say? And they compared it to the one from 900 A.D. And, of course, there were differences. It was not a perfect match, but the differences did not alter the narrative in any substantive way. We didn't discover a totally different story. We found a text that was 99% unchanged over the course of a 1,000 years. So for me, that's case closed, but I mentioned some differences. So what are some of those differences? And this is a complicated subject, but... I hope to give you a taste of this with two examples, and and these aren't going to actually come from Isaiah. Um, They're going to come from other books in the Bible, but this will give you an idea of what we're talking about. First example is ancient Hebrew versus modern Hebrew. The original books, like the Dead Sea Scrolls even, that copy was written in ancient Hebrew, which they didn't have vowels. They used consonants to function as vowels. And by the time you get to the Middle Ages, that version from 900 A.D., they had added vowels. Well, how do you know? How do you know that's uh, it's just vowels? That's one. And two, we have a bunch of ancient documents, not necessarily biblical, but a bunch of ancient documents spanning that gap from 100 B.C. to 900 A.D. So we can clearly see how the language changed over time. We have people that can read ancient Hebrew. We have people that can read modern Hebrew. I'm not saying it's easy because all of us would be doing it if it was easy, but we, we, we've We can handle the old versus the modern Hebrew, okay? So not an argument, not a point of discussion. Don't accept it. Here's another one. Changes were made, updates, edits were made based on information available at the time or the audience at the time. And I'm telling you, just just please please calm down. Everything's going to be okay. Genesis chapter 14, here's an example. Genesis 14, 14. It says, When Abram heard that his relative Lot was taken captive, he summoned his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit up to Dan. Fast forward to Judges, which is way after Moses, or sorry, (laughs) way after Moses, way after Abraham. Judges 18, 29. It says, and they called the name of the city Dan after Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel, but the former name of the city was Laish. So in book one, Genesis, it's called Dan, and then in book seven, Judges, it gets changed from Laish to Dan. Well, wait. Wait, wait a minute. What happened? It's actually very simple. Place names change all the time. What was happening was you had a scribe copying the book of Genesis, and he knew from Judges, the time of the Judges, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 29, that the name of the city was changed from Laish to Dan. But he was writing so long after that, that he wanted people reading Genesis to understand where Abraham actually was, where he was going. So what he did was, like a rebel, he went into the end, he changed the last word from Laish to Dan, so that his readers would actually know what was going on. Okay? all he did this is an edit this is an update for the purpose of his readers to know oh that's where my ancestor abraham was good that's where he was going okay how many know that new york city was never was not always called new york city right. it was actually called new amsterdam before that and before that it was probably called something by the american indians not even in english so place names change who cares who cares here's another one psalm seventy-two twenty. Prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are completed. It's kind of a boring verse. Um, I mentioned this earlier. David always wrote in the first person. So he definitely didn't write this. And if you read the Psalms after chapter 72, you will find Psalms that David wrote. So what happened? Well, in some English Bibles, you actually see this. At the top of a few pages throughout the book, you'll see book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five. Our whole book of Psalms is actually a group of five smaller books. And what's happening here is, throughout history, Psalms by David, Asaph, the sons of Korah, Solomon, other people were written, and they were compiled over time. And at this point in the history this scribe only had 72. So he said, even though there are psalms before chapter 72 that were written by people other than David, it's mostly David, so they kind of said, okay, the prayers of the David, the son of Jesse, are completed, because that's all he had. It's all he had was 72. And then after that scribe added that, ver- so verse 20 quite literally was added to chapter 72 at that point. And then as... Future scribes discovered more psalms written by David and others. They added them as subsequent chapters. But they didn't go, bother to go back and fix the edit in Psalm 72, verse 20. So you have an update and then a failure to correct an update. So here, here's the point when you hear about inconsistencies in the text and you start to freak out, guys, this is what those inconsistencies are. This is what the skeptics, whether they've read the text or not, are actually talking about. Yes, they're there. Yes, there were changes, there were updates, there were edits, and yes, I'm even comfortable using this word. Yes, there are currently errors in the text like Psalm 7220, I would call that an error. And they have zero impact on the truth. Zero. It is not a valid argument to say the whole thing is in question or that Jesus is not the Son of God on the basis of these insignificant textual issues. It is not a valid argument. In 1944, a professor of math and astronomy named Dr. Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks. You can actually read this for free online. We're going to send that link as well in social media and in an email later, so be on the lookout for that. In one chapter, he demonstrated the powerful implications about the prophecies of Jesus. I'm sure many of you have heard comparisons before about, you know, marking a golf ball and then covering the whole state of Texas two feet deep and blindfolding somebody and having him try to go out and find the one with a mark on it. Well, Dr. Stoner kind of took it to a different level. He, he went about calculating the probability that it would, the, the, the chance that any one person could fulfill even just a handful of these prophecies about Jesus at random. And he gradually expanded his list of calculations. He kept adding prophecies, and the numbers got bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time he got to just 48 prophecies, he had a problem because the number was too big. You say, Phil, what do you mean the number's too big? I mean, numbers go to infinity, right? The probability was 1 in 10 to the 157th power, which is a 1 with 157 zeros after it. And our tech team is amazing, but they, uh, there's no way they can fit that number on the screen. That number is too big. But in order to illustrate why it's too big, I can't use quarters. I have to use electrons. <laughs> so if you don't know, an electron is one of the smallest particles known to man. And if you made a single file line of them only one inch long, so I don't know how close I can get to the camera. Maybe I can even go like this. Like one inch long, okay, there'd be 2.5 quadrillion electrons between my fingers. 2.5 quadrillion. Um, In terms of zeros, that's 15 zeros, which is a lot of zeros. But that's child's play because I need 157 zeros. (laughs) Guys, that's enough electrons to completely fill not just our galaxy, but the entire known universe. Then we find a volunteer, blindfold them, and say, go go find the one. Don't worry. You've got the whole universe to cover. You get one chance to find the one. Remember, this is for just 48. This is the probability that any one person could fulfill 48 prophecies. And the universe isn't big enough. So how many universes do we need for all 350-plus prophecies? Well, I don't have that number. I think Dr. Stoner kind of quit after 48 because the argument was over. Also remember that we have 131 completely preserved prophecies just from Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was written at least 100 years before Jesus was born. And Dr. Stoner did this calculation in 1944, three years before they even found the scroll. Little did he know just how powerful this illustration would become three years later. So again, before the scroll was even found, Dr. Stoner concludes his illustration with this statement. He says, to the extent that we know this blindfolded man cannot possibly pick out the marked electron, we know the Bible is inspired. We know the Bible is inspired. This is not merely evidence. It is proof of the Bible's inspiration by God. Proof so definite that the universe is not large enough to hold the evidence. Guys, this is why prophecies matter. This is why it's so important that we have definitive proof that these statements were written down before Jesus was born. Guys, we fight from victory, not defeat. We do not have a faith that is based on flimsy ground and flawed logic and, 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 and just suspension of belief. This, yes, it is faith. It is faith. It is not fact. But the fact is every single worldview available to you is a leap of faith. And the longer I am alive, the more convinced I become that the hard numbers, the hard science from the Old Testament points me in one direction. A little town called Bethlehem. Too small to be numbered among the clans of Judah, but just big enough for the Son of God to launch a rescue mission. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good. You are so good. We are so overwhelmed by your love. We're overwhelmed by the power of your word. God, we thank you that you put so much of yourself into this text that we have, into this story that would be written over the course of a thousand years before you were born and then you would actually show up and rescue everything and kickstart this crazy thing called the church and that we would get to sit here in 2020 in a basement because we're stuck here because of a virus virus And look back at this story that you wrote and just say, what in the world? (laughs) Your fingerprints are all over this thing. And the universe isn't even big enough to hold the evidence because of course it's not big enough. You made it. God, you made it all. You see it all. And you see each and every single one of us right now. And you even put prophecies about us in the Old Testament before Jesus was even born, before we were even born, thousands of years before we are born. So God, overwhelm us with your closeness right now. You see every single one of us. You know each and every single name. Every single person on this broad, on this live stream right now that will any person that in the future watches this video god you know their name and you see their situation too you know every single thing that's ever happened to them every single hurt every single tear and just like you can handle transmitting your story across history god you can handle that too you can handle that hurt that depression that anxiety you can handle this virus You can handle political turmoil. You can handle global war. You can handle trade wars. You can handle economic strife. You can handle the stock market crashing and rebounding and crashing again. You can handle job loss. You can handle family turmoil. You can handle all of that. God, we thank you that you made it. And even though we ruined it, we look forward to next week when we get to celebrate you sending your son to rescue everything. And we can't wait for the week after that and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that that when we get to witness and take part in The work that you're still doing as you finish up this wonderful, incredible story that you started. In Jesus' name, amen.